Well, a couple of weeks ago, I started the sermon by asking the question, if you had to answer it, uh, what would be, if you had to guess, what was the biggest concern of the authors of the New Testament? That's how I started a couple of weeks ago. What was the biggest concern of the authors in the New Testament, if you had to characterize it? And then I kind of zeroed that question in to say, where was the biggest concern, inside or outside the church? And my answer was, clearly, the main concern for the New Testament authors was inside the church. We see that just in the epistles, who they're written to. Um, and uh, one thing, though, I didn't answer with a great amount of specificity was uh, what exactly they were concerned about. And when it comes down to it, the, there are three things that the New Testament authors are very concerned about. They're concerned about doctrinal slide. Uh, they're ter- concerned about disobedience. And they're concerned, thirdly, about disagreement in the church. Those three things, doctrinal slide, disobedience, disagreement. And that third element is what we're going to talk about today. Disagreement in the life of the church that leads to disparaging speech and divisions against one another in the church. So when you stop and think about this for a second, think about the amount of internal disagreements that need to be addressed in the New Testament. Just stop and think about it. Right from the very beginning in the book of Acts, chapter 6, right? We got this division going on between the Hebrews and the Hellenists over the daily distribution. We, we were reminded of Paul and Barnabas, one of the first missionary journeys, right? They're coming out and they're uh, disagreeing about the use of Mark. And so Paul and Barnabas split up and go separate directions. We read about the church in Rome that was having issues regarding disagreements about various uh, foods and the need to celebrate different festivals, right? The same issues regarding festivals and Sabbath keeping. They seem to be a problem in the church at Colossae. The church in Corinth. Wow, the church in Corinth, right? So much disobedience and disagreement there. I can't even represent them all in short order. Right, And then we get Euodia and Syntyche in the book of uh, Philippians, the letter to Philippians. They get called out right, because of their disagreement between one another. Paul uh, had to give Titus special instructions about what to do with certain yahoos that were coming into the church and causing all kinds of division. And this is just a brief review. Just a brief review. Disagreements that manifest in evil speech was a major concern for the church then and now. And now everybody loves community. Everybody loves diversity until you actually have to live it out, right? Actually do it. Enter James 4, 11 and 12. So if you're new to the church, welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been walking line by line through the book of James. And here we go. These are the next two verses, verse 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? To judge your neighbor. Well, let's start off with that command, shall we? Right there in verse 11. What's the command? First point there is the command. Verse 11, the command is do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And we can add there brothers and sisters. By the way, the Greek word is the word anthropoi, 
which is where you get the study of anthropology, right? The study of humanity. So the ending OI is gender sort of neutral. And so we could say, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. And so we need to bring some clarity as to what's being addressed here, right? Need to bring some clarity. What exactly is James talking about? Is he saying, is James saying that we should never rebuke, never admonish, never exhort someone that is walking in disobedience? Is that what he's saying? Well, clearly that can't be the case, right? He literally just called them an adulterous people, right? He literally just said, right, weep and mourn and these kinds of things for their sin, what they've been doing. He just said, resist the devil, be wretched, mourn, weep, submit themselves to God. There are probably a, there's easily a top 10 or 20 most misrepresented or misunderstood uh, verses in the Bible. And in that top 10 easily is Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, right? One of the most common uh, misunderstood verses. Uh, The more that we understand what's going on there is by just reading what comes after it, right? But clearly the call here is not that we should never speak firmly to those in disobedience. That's not what's going on here. So what is it? What is he saying? Well, James is referencing personal attacks. Personal attacks whose purpose is to hurt another person in general. Although we should say James is clearly addressing brothers and sisters in in Christ. Putting some Bible words on this to try to understand it a little bit more. Putting some Bible words on this. Enmity, jealousy, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, as they are expressed through slander, gossip, malice, or obscene talk to one another in Christ. So many of you seen this activity last week at the Oscars, right? Some of you have seen this, right, in your own family growing up, right? You've seen this kind of talk growing up. Some of you may still be experiencing this in your home. Maybe some of you are experiencing this in your office. Maybe some of you have experienced in the life of the church. In terms of its forms, what this looks like nowadays, it often comes from people who feel more courageous, kind of personalized in their home. And so it often comes in the forms of text messages, emails, social media posts, But of course, it often comes in face-to-face contact. One person defames or denigrates or belittles or attacks or badmouths another for something they see as wrong. The motive, right, is again to hurt the person for something they feel as though they've been wronged in or something they feel the need to defend. Maybe a pastor threatens a church member because they won't do what he says. Or maybe a church member fires off a harsh email to the pastor because he said something they didn't like. Or maybe the husband chastises his wife because she didn't do what she wants him to do. Or back to the partialism that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Maybe the anti-maskers poke fun at the maskers or vice versa. The maskers believe the worst about the anti-maskers. They speak evil against one another. Or they think it or they gossip. Anytime one person speaks a word whose intent is to harm the other person, you've crossed the line into the command to not speak evil to one another. And friends, even if you're right about something, it's possible to say the right thing in the wrong way and cross the line into evil speech. And you'll know that's you when you're more interested in attacking the person than you are the argument. Sometimes called an ad hominem argument. 
attacking the person more so than the argument. You'll know you've kind of fallen into this, right? When a person not only wants to win the argument, but they want you to feel it on the way down. They get a certain amount of, or maybe you get a certain amount of joy, right, in kind of wounding the person in those words. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Jesus says that they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And we don't love one another by speaking evil like this to one another. And I want to say clearly to this church, I think, I thank God that this church, by and large, this does not represent this church. We've been through a lot in the last couple of years. I know I've, I've sat in meetings with a lot of pastors where this has been happening a bunch in their churches. I'm thankful that this has not been something that has marked us, that that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Doesn't mean that it can't happen. Doesn't mean that it won't happen. Matter of fact, I'm mindful of the fact that tonight we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you know a brother or sister has something against you, go and reconcile with them first and then come to the table. Think about that, guys, before we take the Lord's Supper tonight. If you know someone that you've spoken evil against, you need to go and reconcile with them. Or they think they have evil against you, go and reconcile with them and then come to the table. As James has said, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, full of restless evil, full of deadly poison. That's what he said. While lions and tigers and bears, oh my, can be tamed, James says that the tongue can't. So poisonous. And so James instructed us, God instructs us, bridle your tongues, beloved. Bridle them by humbling yourselves and drawing near to the Lord, knowing he will draw near to you. Do not speak evil against one another, church family. Now here's the thing about this passage. You all knew this, right? Before you came in here, you knew that. You knew that you shouldn't speak evil about one another, but you do it. I've done it. You knew that before you came in here. It's hard to bridle the tongue, isn't it? I'm mindful of the comedy sketch where the, uh, there's a counselor and the woman comes in to see this counselor and the, uh, the woman asks at the front end of the counseling meeting, how much will this cost for an hour? And he, he says back to her, you don't need to pay by the hour. You only need to pay by the minute. And most people don't last five minutes. And she launches into what's wrong with her life. And he says about halfway through, stop it. Just don't do that anymore. Stop. And if she launches in, she keeps going. He just says, stop it. Right? And of course, the, the, the thing that makes it funny is, is we all know that these things are wrong, but we go to counselors to help us understand why we're doing these things. We can't stop it. Right? It's complex. It's difficult. So most of us know this command, but it doesn't always stop us from disobeying this command. And so let's dig at this a little bit more and see if we can find some more help so that we don't speak evil to one another. And we're going to do that, second point, by asking why speaking evil is wrong in the first place. So the first point was, what's the command? And that was, don't speak evil to one another. But now we're asking, why is it wrong in the first place? What's wrong with this speaking evil? And I think what that'll do is it'll help us to understand the command a little better and maybe curb us from doing it. So like a good doctor, James explains what is happening when you do this, when you speak evil. He helps us see what speaking evil of another person functionally is doing. 
And there's three pieces to it. He gives in the passage. Three pieces to what actually is happening when you speak evil of another person. Here's the first. The first is, is when you speak evil or slander or gossip or denigrate another brother or sister in Christ, it's not just the person you are speaking to or about. You are also speaking to the law. That's what he says there in verse 11. You're speaking to the law. More than likely, when he says law there, James likely has the, the law, the law, the word of God in view. We can, we can think back to James 1 and 2 when he's referencing the law of liberty, right? Which is touching in on God's law. And so he's likely talking about God's word. And so what he's saying, guys, is this. He's saying when you speak evil against someone, you are also speaking against God's good word. You're speaking against God's good law. You can't get away from this. Every evil word is not only a personal attack, but it is also an attack on God's law. That leads to the second movement. Evil speech is wrong because it simultaneously judges God's law. And second, by judging God's law, James says, you then are no longer a subject of the law. But in doing this, you put yourself up on the judge's seat. In other words, if in the first step you attack the law of God, in the second step, James is saying you attack the throne of God. So if you were to imagine, uh, if we were to imagine Christ seated on his all authoritative throne, the right hand of the Father, when we speak evil against someone, we speak against his law, and by doing so, he says you also attempt to push him off the judge's chair and put yourself there. You've tried to make yourself the judge instead of the subject of the judge's laws. In practice, you're saying, get off the throne, Jesus. I'm the one in charge here. It's my wishes, my assessments, my timelines, my values, my way of doing things. And I need to rule over this person or persons. That's what it's saying. Which leads to the third movement. For why evil speech is wrong. It assaults the law of God. It assaults the throne of God. And thirdly it therefore pretends to be God. That's verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. James says. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Implication. That ain't you bro. Right. That's what he's saying. That ain't you. You're not able to save and destroy. You can't save a single person, nor can any of us condemn a single person to hell. None of us can do that. Only God can do that. And yet, when we speak evil against another person, functionally, we're trying to act as though we're him. Which leads to James's mic drop question. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, what James is saying is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are in doing this and talking like this? You've got no right to act like you're God. That's what he's saying. Evil speech, friends, in other words, is high treason. It's high treason as it is against the highest throne in the land. So how, you feeling good about that little Facebook post now? <laughs> right? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, because by doing so, you not only speak evil of them, 
You speak evil of God's law and God's authority. And at the same time, you act as though you are the law and authority. You act as though you are God. This is what James is saying. Evil speech is a kind of blasphemy. Hopefully, beloved, this helps us to be quicker to listen. Slower to speak. Slower to be angry. Hopefully this gets us back to chapter 3, verse 17. Living in the wisdom from above, not the wisdom from below. Wisdom from above. First pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. But beloved, there's even more for us here in this passage. We've seen what the command of God is in our speech. Namely, do not speak evil against one another. We've seen, secondly, why this command is in place. Because in doing so, we attack the throne of God. But let's now see how we ever got there in the first place. So if you're anything like me, you hear all of this and you say to yourself, well, I don't ever want to speak evil of someone again. And yet we probably will. Hopefully, we've been taught this morning. Hopefully, even in this moment, we've been quickened this morning. But I think there's one more step to take in order to get to a place where we consistently resist the devil, bridle our tongues, draw near to the Lord. And again, that's, I think we're going to see that by seeing how we would be tempted to do this in the first place. I'm going to do that. We'll describe that. I'll apply the gospel and then one application. Third point, how we got to speaking evil in the first place. So look again at the context before this passage. All right, in the context of this passage, remembering what came before it. For those of you that were here the last couple of weeks, you'll remember the three great enemies to our sanctification. The three great enemies to our joy, to our freedom in Christ. The three great enemies. He listed them. Look back in chapter 4. You can see it there. Verses 1 to 3, the first great enemy is the passions at war within us. Right? The, the, that is our desire for personal pleasure. That was chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Our flesh. The second enemy is the friendship with the world. We want to fit in. We want to be friends with the world. Whatever it says, we want to do. I often exemplify that by like this. How, what, what do we, how's the wind blowing? I'm going to go along with it. As opposed to trying to fight upstream. So friendship with the world. Third, the devil. Chapter 4, verse 7. Right? All three of these things prey upon us every single day in subtle ways that often go unnoticed unless we are vigilant to see them and fight against them by the Lord's grace. And the net effect of these three things, when we lose, the net effect of these three elements warring against us is seen in verse 6 of chapter 4. Pride. Pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So pride or arrogance is the result of battles lost to the internal desire for personal pleasure, being friends with the world, and or being deceived by the devil. So we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities of this world. Therefore, swollen egos are the battle scars of battles lost. Swollen egos are the Battle scars of battles lost. So where you see pride and arrogance, there you see someone that is losing the battle. And there you see them trying to seize a throne that is not theirs. Did you catch that? 
Right? When you see pride and arrogance, there you see someone losing the battle, and there you see them trying to seize a throne that is not theirs. Pride, or pride, friends, is the fuel of evil speech. Pride is the fuel to evil speech. So in theory, none of us would ever want to think to assault God's authority by trying to prop ourselves up as judge, and yet we do. Why? Well, because too often we don't heed James's warnings. We, we quarrel and we fight because we want our own way. Right? Or secondly, we want to fit into the world. Or thirdly, we listen to the lies of the deceiver. When he tells us we deserve this thing. And so by so-and-so telling, telling me that I don't, they're the enemy and they need to be judged. That's sort of how it goes. And we listen. And why do we uh, why do we listen and not resist? Because of pride. We think too highly of ourselves. Because we don't want to submit, we want to rule. We don't want to follow, we want to lead. We don't want to discipline ourselves, we want to indulge ourselves. We don't want to be uh, who God made us to be. We want to, feel, we want to be whoever we feel like we want to be. We don't, want, we don't want to be under authority. We want to be in authority. We don't want to be doers of the law. We want to be judges of the law. Pride, arrogance is below our evil speech. Pride or arrogance is the fuel to our evil speech. This is how we ever got to the doorstep of evil speech in the first place, guys. We want and do not have, and so we fight. We speak evil words to blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. To maybe get a throne that lasts for a breath. And that leads us to the verses that lead into this passage. Uh, back in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. We, we've been considering 11 and 12. That leads us, and I've been walking us through 4, 1 to 9. And so the antidote, the antidote to not only pride, but the, but the antidote to judgmental speech, the solution here, it leads us there. See, if the reason for how we even got to a place where we are tempted to offer judgmental speech is because of giving in to the enemy, leaning into our pride, that would explain the answer or the antidote in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's the antidote. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The answer to pride is humility. Which is also the answer to the bridal tongue. Humility, humility, not just in general, but seeing ourselves for who we are in light of who God is. Drawing near to him. Now this verse, guys, look at verse 10 again. This verse is absolutely stunning. When you think about what James says uh, our evil speech is doing in verse 11 and 12. Again, let me read that verse. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This verse is stunning in light of what we considered in 11 and 12. James says that our evil speech is wrong because we are trying to exalt ourselves to the throne of God, which of course is impossible, but we still try. So we got to stop that. Don't do it. But he says, if you humble yourselves and submit yourselves to God, he won't make you God, but he will still exalt you. To an even greater glory. How about that? It's amazing. But that throne 
even greater glory seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You're exalted with him. You get there. That throne, it only comes at the cost of your dying to yourself and living to him. Seeing yourself as a servant, not as a master, not as a judge. And so there's the option. Either you, you live for yourself, the world, or the devil by giving in to all of your personal pleasures, stepping on anyone or anything that gets in your way in order to have a place of exaltation in the world. That's option one. Or option two, you resist individual passions. You draw near to the Lord. You humble yourselves to him and he will exalt you to the heavens where you rule with Christ, the King of Kings forever. There you go. Which one do you want? Now, most of you are sitting there going, well, yeah, well, the second option is the right one. It's hard to live in that, isn't it? You want to fight, either either we want to fight to get on an earthly throne that will be like cotton candy, where even if you get it, it'll dissolve just as quickly as you got it. Or do you want to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, and rule with him forever? Either you want pleasure now, but pain forevermore. Or pain now and pleasure with Christ forevermore. Which is it? Guys, it can't be both. I know all of us, myself included, are trying. If I can figure it out, there's a way I can get both. Be friends of the world, but still love Jesus. Not possible. Not possible. Not an option. It's either one or the other. And we see this perfectly exemplified in Jesus. And here I'm going to kind of move towards the gospel. We see this in the wilderness when Jesus himself was tempted. In every instance, in every instance, the devil tempted Jesus to have a crown without a cross. To have the wealth of nations without the wounds of nails. Tempted to have pleasure now, but pain forevermore. And Jesus, of of course, resisted the devil and he fled. Jesus knew it couldn't be both. And so he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was willing to sacrifice, lay it all down. Therefore, God the Father, what? Exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. This, beloved, is the way of the gospel. It's the way of the gospel. It is the the power. It is the power of the gospel. It is the power of God for our salvation. And this is the, the gospel is also the power of God for our sanctification. It's the power of God for our salvation, it's how we get saved, but it's also the power of God for our sanctification. And by the way, it's also the pattern for our sanctification. Jesus' example. Jesus was and is, beloved, able to save and destroy because he did as James did, and he's the only one that ever did. He humbled himself as God in the flesh. He humbled himself. He drew near to God the Father. Was, and God the Father was pleased to exalt him because he became a servant of all. Right? Isn't that what J- James said? You want to be greatest of all? Be servant of all. That's what Jesus did. Jesus never spoke an evil. Uh, Jesus, Jesus never spoke evil towards another. But he always spoke the truth in love. Even when it was harsh. His words were like shapes that perfectly fit into the hole that they went through. Because he was and is the great judge of righteousness. He was, again, God in the flesh. He wasn't trying to achieve a throne, as the Mormons teach us. But he was God in the flesh. 
Therefore, Jesus was uniquely able to pay for all of our sins, including Here's the salve. If you've been convicted about those evil words, here's the salve. Here comes the balm of the gospel. Because Jesus was uniquely able to always speak the truth in love and never speak an evil word to another. Therefore, repenting of sin and trusting in his sacrifice on your behalf, he therefore pays for all of that evil speech that you have done. Man, I was so encouraged yesterday, personal devotions, working through the Psalm, Psalm 32. I'm reading through the, uh, I'm using this thing for the New Living Translation. It's a little different for me, but New Living Translation, it says, it says, all your guilt is gone. Man, I just meditated on that all day yesterday. All your guilt is gone. Because of Christ's speech, your speech can be counted as though it was clean, even though it wasn't. He pays that wrong, and then he sends his spirit to empower you to live it out, to not do that anymore. He paid for all the times that we assaulted his word and his throne. Can you believe that? He knew he was paying for all those times you tried to punch him and get on his throne. He did that willingly and gladly on your behalf, Christian. He paid them all because only he was righteous from womb to tomb. If you've ever wondered the question, why is Jesus' death, how's a guy's death 2,000 years ago able to atone for all the deaths of those that trust him? Because Jesus is uniquely able, because Jesus was uniquely righteous. Fully God, fully man, never sinned. And so that cross is so central to us, right, as Christians. This is why the cross is so central, because that's where all of our guilt goes away. In Christ on the cross, he takes our sin on the cross and all of his righteousness gets counted to us that believe. Which, of course, after he dies on the cross, he's placed in a tomb and we're waiting for it, right? James has taught us to teach, to wait for it. Then he had an exaltation that we not just celebrate in a couple weeks. We celebrate it every, not only every week, every day, his exaltation, right? Over sin and death in the resurrection, And so now Jesus is uniquely able to do as James says in James 4.12. He is uniquely able to save and to destroy. Verse 12, uh, chapter 1 verse 20 taught us our our anger is unable to produce the righteousness of God. But we learn in Christ his love and his good anger is able to produce the righteousness of God. That's the gospel which leads into the application. If we are going to not lose the war and find ourselves on the wrong side of the judgment seat of Christ, if we are going to ever bridle our tongues and not speak evil to anyone anymore, we're going to have to be mindful of the command of Christ to not speak evil. We're going to have to secondly understand what disobedience is doing. That is, we have to understand our judgmental speech is trying to assault the throne of God, not to mention hurt our brother or sister. We must then humble ourselves, draw near to the throne of grace to find forgiveness for all the times we've spoken evil to others, asking him to show us grace for the times we pridefully assaulted his throne and tried to rule others in our own way. We have to learn to daily, daily, we have to learn to live inside of this gospel because the more that we do, the more that we learn to humble ourselves, draw near to the Lord, the more we will learn to enjoy an exaltation that is greater than any other exaltation we might try and achieve on this earth. And that's the final piece of the puzzle right there. There's the final piece. There's the application. 
Not only drawing near to the Lord, not only receiving his grace day after day, reorienting ourselves inside of that gospel, but being mindful of our future exaltation with him. There's the key. In order for you to stop speaking evil and start humbling yourselves before the Lord, you are going to have to learn to treasure your heavenly exaltation more than you enjoy your earthly exaltations, which are only for a moment anyway. That's why James puts this here. He knows that behind our evil speech lies an evil desire to be personally exalted for your own glory. We speak evil of others because in part... Let's be honest. We like it, don't we? Makes us feel good about ourselves. We're better than them because of X, Y, Z. We look down on them. We say things and think it in our heart. James knows that we want exaltation. And listen, you should. How about that? You expect expect the preacher to say that today? You should want exaltation, but not on this earth. Not in the way that you and I try to seek it in our words. Seek exaltation with Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right? There, as Ephesians teaches us, we're seated with him. There's the exaltation. We fight to meditate, to see. And that then quiets our hearts. We don't speak evil anymore. Because we already have a throne. We ever have an exaltation that's greater. If you learn to stop trying, friends, so hard to be exalted in the world... And you learn to start longing for Christ's exaltation and the exaltation that you'll enjoy with him in heaven. Then and only then will you find the pleasure that you're made for. And then and only then will you learn to quiet your words. Guys, this is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. When it comes to this issue of disparaging speech. The non-Christian will do whatever they need to do. They will do everything in his or her power to gain exaltation on this earth because this is all they got. It's all they're thinking about. They lie, they steal, they cheat, they steal, they speak evil to whoever stands in the way of their earthly exaltation and vain glory. The Christian, though, on the other hand, understands we're sojourners on this earth. We live for more, not less. We live for more. We love and gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ. We long to see him face to face. Therefore, we look to Jesus to forgive us, to empower us, to orient us in our heavenly exaltation with him. The Christian says, take the world. Just give me Jesus. I'll I'll play whatever role here you would have me to play. Take the world, give me Jesus. Jesus, like the prodigal son, I'll be a servant if it means I'm back in his house. Far better than living up in a world and ending up in a pigsty of the city of man that is here today and gone tomorrow. And so, beloved, learn to love your heavenly exaltation with Christ and give up any pursuits of earthly exaltations with man, which is only vain glory. Cotton candy here today dissolved like that. That's the key to the proper use of your tongue. It was with Christ, so it'll be with those that are his. And for those that are his, for the church that does this, looks to Christ, looks to his exaltations, oriented by that, repenting, believing, doing that. For those that are his, how good it is when you get to enjoy that. How good it is to no longer try and stand over my brother or sister as a judge, but instead to dwell alongside them in unity. 
to dwell alongside them. This, guys, is heaven on earth. When you get in that kind of a culture inside the life of the church. This is who the church is supposed to be. A community of humble servants who will be exalted together with Christ in the new Jerusalem. Therefore, we don't have to fight to overcome and spat against each other here. We can learn to disagree charitably and lovingly and kindly and not fight against each other. This is who we're supposed to be. We have it in Christ. And so we enjoy with that future view. We enjoy it here in the now. So, beloved, do not speak evil to one another. Because in doing so, you're acting as though you're God. And if you're not a Christian and you're feeling the need to give your life to Jesus, come talk to somebody. We'll walk you through it. But beloved, don't do this. You're not God. You're not the judge. Humble yourselves. Draw near to him. He will draw near to you. Come to Jesus. Treasure his exaltation, which leads to your future exaltation with him in heaven. The city of God where you will dwell together with him and all of the family of God in perfect harmony. That's the pathway to peace. This is to be the community of heaven on the place of earth. We do this looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So let's draw near to him now and ask him for help. Father, we agree that we've done this. Have mercy on us. Forgive us for all of the pursuits of vain glory to put ourselves up above someone else. Oftentimes for things that are not of eternal consequences. Have mercy on us. We praise you, Jesus, that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. Thank you. And for those that are quickened, Oh, God, lead them to the throne of grace. Lead them to draw near to you as you draw near to them. And God, lead us to be a community of Christians that gaze upon the heavenly exaltation of Christ and there considers our heavenly exaltation with him. And that then quiets our hearts and orients us to a world of so much division and dissension. Help us to be, God, a kind of appetizer of heavenly feasts. Help us to be a kind of peculiar people that are so enraptured with your exaltation that we don't feel the need to try to get our own. We just want to submit to yours. Guard our speech in light of the coming glory of heaven. We pray this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory and not our own. Amen. Amen.